This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom in Mind, a podcast about maternal mental health from conception, pregnancy, to birth and postpartum. Real stories from moms and family members who've made it from struggling to wellness, and interviews with experts and advocates who work for moms and families to get the help they need. We discuss very real struggles that can sometimes be hard to hear, but these are stories that need to be told so that moms and families can know that healing is possible. This podcast is meant to offer information and awareness and is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Thank you for being with us today. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Mom in Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. In this episode, we are talking with Stacy Porter. She is the president and founder of the Tangerine Owl Project, but she is coming on today to share her experience. I was specifically looking for parents to talk about any medical challenges that came up during pregnancy or postpartum that they had to deal with and how that might have impacted their mental health. And Stacy was graciously open to sharing her experience. She's going to be telling us and walking us through the details of her pregnancy, where she experienced preeclampsia, and she'll tell us a little bit about what that is and what that means. And then the birth of her daughter at 25 weeks because of that condition, and then what happened afterwards, and the loss of her daughter while in the NICU. It's a difficult experience, but also one that I know that a lot of people go through, whether you can identify with all of her story or some of it. Once again, it's so important for us to hear these stories so that we know that we're not alone. And it looks different for everybody, but Stacy's willingness to share her experience hopefully gives somebody out there some comfort. And if not that, just a good education on what things can look like and how to be supportive. Stacy's been dedicated to efforts centering around supporting families who have suffered infant loss and traumatic birth since 2013. As I stated, she's the founder of the Tangerine Owl Project, a nonprofit devoted to offering peer support to these families, started in memory of her daughter after the NICU loss in 2012. Stacy is heavily invested in efforts to support maternal mental health as it intertwines so greatly with traumatic birth and bereavement experiences for these families. She is a contractor with 2020 Mom Project, leading their volunteer program, social media, and handful of other objects. She sits on the board of directors for a local nonprofit, Beyond the Baby Blues, which offers support for women suffering from perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, and serves on the bereavement committee for the Mother's Milk Bank of the Western Great Lakes. She's a member of the National Perinatal Association and Preemie Parent Alliance and has collaborated on projects for patient education, including online curriculum for staff on psychosocial support for NICU parents. Once again, I'm so honored to have Stacy on with us. Let's hear from her. Welcome, Stacy. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I had to kind of put a call out for people who are willing to talk about their stories and you responded and I'm so grateful that you're willing and open to come on and share your experience so that others can, number one, not feel alone and also kind of hear what to look out for in their own experiences or at least what to, like you were saying before we chatted, not to be blindsided by that sometimes really, really difficult things happen and then also people heal from them, which is amazing. So please start wherever you'd like with your story. Sure. Well, I think as kind of some subtext, I 
was pregnant with our third child, and this was in 2012. And my previous two pregnancies, I had no complications at all. I had picture perfect pregnancies, really, not even morning sickness, which is amazing to some people, but they seem to be kind of built for childbearing, which mm-hmm. is kind of funny. But I had a boy and a girl. And then with my third pregnancy, you know, I had seeing the same provider and kind of expecting the status quo. We were in the same area and it was very much just a completely different and life-altering experience. I was about halfway through my pregnancy, 24 weeks along when I went in for a normal OB check-in mm-hmm. and Everything looked relatively fine. There's nothing that caused alarm for my midwife. So at the end, you know, she said, well, you know, any questions, comments, concerns, anything? And I said, well, I said, no, not really. I said, I feel pretty good. I said, my ankles are swollen, but that's really about it. And I had worked in hotels at the time. So I was on my feet a lot and I kind Mm -hmm. of really just attributed it to that. And thank goodness she had said, oh, you know, let's take a look, you know, and I put my feet up and she was like, hmm, (laughs) you know, I hadn't remembered my ankles getting that swollen that early. Uh So that little comment and the way that my provider was able to catch that and really take it to heart and look further is really amazing to me because some don't. Right. So otherwise I would have just gone back, like I would have gone back and had been operating just as normal and things could have gone significantly worse. I mean, Mm. so she ended up looking at my feet. She saw that they were swollen probably beyond where they needed to be. She decided to do a test of my urine and found that I was spilling protein. So she had then concluded what she had thought, which was that I was preeclamptic, which really was a, I guess it was more of a process. I think that was in her head. She wanted to confirm not only that there was protein in the urine, because that's not mm-hmm. always the case in preeclampsia, which I know sounds funny because they've changed the dialogue about that condition in recent. That was a fact that they didn't know how far the condition had progressed. So at that point, she asked me to do a 24-hour urine collection, which was super fun, let me tell I'm you. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can imagine being like, you know, oh, I have to go store my urine now. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> so rough. Was, yeah. And at work, you know, all mm-hmm. places. But anyhow, so... I went on to do that and my levels came back at a high level. They really like, if I remember correctly, they like for levels to be under 300. And my first test came back at something like 750. So they already doubled. And at that point she had said, I'm going to, you know, I want to watch you. I want to admit you to the hospital just to kind of keep an eye on things. So I did that. And within the next day, they had me do another collection from the day I was admitted to the next day and they doubled or tripled again. It was, oh, I mean, it was really rapidly progressing yeah. and it got to the point where the day after that I was at 3,500. So we're talking the span of, you know, Monday was my appointment date and Friday was the day that they said, look, you know, we're going to transfer you down mm-hmm. to a hospital that's more equipped to handle I'm certain that they knew what was coming. So to handle the earlier deliveries and, you know, again, my baby was only 25 weeks at that point. So So I got transferred down there and I was monitored. I guess my hospital experience was an hour and a half away from home. Hmm. So I went on a nice little ambulance ride. And (laughs) once I got admitted, it was not very long from there where is still continuing to decline. And I think by that point, I mean, I... Sorry, can I ask you up until this point, did you have anybody with you? Were you able to have a family member or anybody nearby? I did have my husband. You know, he was able to meet me at the first hospital at my home locale. Mm -hmm. So yeah, when I was getting admitted, the call came at like five minutes after I'd walked in the door for a normal day of work the first mm. time when she said, Oh, Hey, we want to admit you. So I called him immediately and uh, he me okay. through the process. But yeah. And then I called my parents when everything was happening, but I didn't really want them to come down. It was at that mm. point, like a three hour drive for them mm. and his parents were in another state. So we were keeping them you know, posted on everything, but not Right. Not yet doing anything. Once they decided to transfer me to, I was living in Champaign, which is 
you know, central Illinois. Once they decided to transfer me down to Peoria, then I called my parents and they met me there at that hospital. Mm -hmm. And of course, my husband was following behind in the car, Mm -hmm. following the ambulance. So my parents met me at the hospital there. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I I did definitely have support. Mm -hmm. At that time, my other two children were ages three and four. Mm -hmm. So they were in preschool and we had called on my husband's parents to come and get them and, you know, just kind of figure out what we were doing as things along. Right. Yeah. So feel like you're the martyr in your family. You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne and Brie and we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the no guilt mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Saturday was the day that I was transferred and I arrived there like three o'clock in the afternoon or so. And at seven, I remember getting a visit from the doctors and they were like, well, we don't really like the way this is going. We'll keep an eye on it for a little bit, but, you know, kind of just be prepared sort of Mm -hmm. thing. And by, let's see, yeah, that was the initial talk at seven. Around 10 or 10.30, the doctor came in and said, look, you know, actually, I didn't know what sex the baby was because he came in and the doctor said, well, baby is showing decelerations and I'm not really confident in the way that, you know, things are going. So they gave me the choice at that point to either keep baby in utero as long as possible or to, you know, and when it was going to go bad, it was going to go bad and they would have to do whatever they needed to do. Or they said, we can kind of control it a little bit by scheduling a C-section tonight. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like yeah. we're not ready. We don't have anything. I don't even, right. you know, just right. kind of that whole shift really, you know, you're trying to focus on what the outcomes are. And I asked the neonatologist at that point, what's the chances of living if we deliver this early? And they said 40%. And Mm. it was such a hard thing to think about. And then I guess the thing that really helped to influence the decision, we did go ahead and schedule the C-section was that the doctors who were watching, you know, the everything had Mm -hmm. kind of said, well, you know, even if we let this go and let baby stay in utero, I don't think that things are going to wait long enough to really make a significant difference in the outcome. So So, if I can, just for a moment, kind of for people who are listening, give them a context of what is preeclampsia? What is it doing to your body? And what are the risks to your child? Sure, sure. So preeclampsia is a condition that can affect any woman. And it can happen at any time during the pregnancy, 
including postpartum. So that's an important thing to note too. Mm -hmm. But what it does with the women's systems, typically what you'll see is a really high rise, a dangerous high level of blood pressure. And that of course causes problems for baby because baby's not getting enough oxygen. There can be things that happen with the placenta that are related. It's understood to some point, but it's also kind of, it doesn't happen the same way for everybody. Mm-hmm. And so, and there are a number of risk factors for some women. It can cause problems with vision. And once it causes seizures, I believe it gets classified then as eclampsia. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's because of the pressure that it puts on the heart and the, mm-hmm. the cardiac. I mean, there's lots of things that can go wrong. So it's a kind of starting with the high blood pressure. You said from earlier, you said there's protein in the urine. Yep, protein um, in the urine. And there are some risk factors, but it could be random. Correct. Yeah. And really what's surprising when I looked back at it, I didn't have any of the risk factors that you see typically for this stuff. So I can name some of those. People seem to be more at risk if it's their first pregnancy, if they're with a different partner than previous pregnancies, if they smoke, if they're of what they call advanced maternal age, so age 35 or more. Mm-hmm. I know those were some of the major factors and I didn't have any of them. It was mm-hmm. not So that's even like, that just goes to show you, it doesn't matter. You know, preeclampsia is a non-discriminatory condition is what I call it. Because it it affects every race, every age. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter how many kids you have, where you live. Certainly those things play a factor into it, but it's really not definitive in who's going to get it and when they're going to get it. I hear a lot of stories about women who have developed it later in pregnancy. So they, sometimes it can be mild and it doesn't affect women to the point that, you know, they need to deliver early. Sometimes bed rest is okay. There is a historical misconception that it was a problem with the placenta mm-hmm. and delivering the child solves it. And that's not the case. Right. So, oh, right. Um, so you were saying in your experience, you said there were decelerations. That means the heart rate yep. for your child was decreasing and that was part of their concern. Yes, exactly. Uh, okay. So that's part of the risks to the child. Yes, okay. absolutely. Yeah, because what happens, I feel like there's restriction between the things that are flowing through the umbilical cord mm. and the placenta and baby's not getting enough of everything that they need. Okay, so in your experience, I'm not sure if you knew about all of this before you went through this or not. You know, I didn't. I had heard the word uh-huh. a few times, but uh-huh. I really, I didn't have much knowledge of it. And the stuff came, looking into it was, you know, after it happens to you, you're like, oh, why did this happen? Uh-huh, right. <laughs> so I, after the fact, I became a volunteer for the Preeclampsia Foundation. Mm. And I had done some patient advocacy work for them for several years after I lost my daughter. So yeah, the stuff you learn is amazing. But I think, you know, they're still trying to figure it out. There's lots of right. things they know. There's lots of things they don't know. Right. So they did a, let's see, I, well, I guess maybe I should go back to the story. So right. if I can ask, you're in the hospital, you have to decide what you're going to do. C-section, you know, there's risks there. Keep the baby in and you know, there are risks there as well on right. some level, but you don't know very much at this point about what all of this is and how it's That's affecting right. you or the baby. So you're just needing to make a decision. Yeah. All my medical care providers were really good about giving the basics. Like, so they would say, Hey, you know, they used the word preeclampsia. They told me what it meant. You know, they showed me that my blood pressures were high and they said, you know, they kept it in relatively simple terms, which I think is helpful when a mother is experiencing, you know, somewhat traumatic or crisis time because you just can't mm-hmm. process a ton of it. Sure. Yeah. But I didn't have the actual background on all of this stuff. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes women get caught up in, well, what did my body do? Mm-hmm you know, how did it work against me? And that's all stuff that kind of came later. But yeah, I mean, they were good at keeping me informed. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I had to make that decision with my husband and Mm -hmm. we kind of talked about it. And when the doctor said it really isn't going to make much difference, I thought, well, you know, let's at least have some control over this then because Mm -hmm. it made more sense to me than, you know, than trying to stick around and, you know, who knows what would happen from then. Right. So they scheduled me for a C-section that evening and I had never had a C-section before either. I had never had an epidural. Mm-hmm. You know, I had IV medications with my other two just to kind of control the pain, but 
yeah, it was all new experience. So I do remember feeling like, oh, you know, it, once I had the epidural and it was like, oh, why didn't I do this before? Like, this was so <laughs> right. But I think it was still kind of scary because they, sure. you know, they had they'd given the injections to help develop the baby's lungs. Again, they, I, I think the medical professionals, they all knew what was coming and where it was going. They just didn't know how fast I think was the really, it was not the, sure. when. Yeah, yeah. and you get two shots to develop the baby's lungs once before I left the original hospital. And then again, once I got to the other hospital, so they were taking precautions. They knew it was coming to give baby best chance of survival. The C-section went just fine. You know, no, I didn't have any complications there. I remember getting, you know, the magnesium sulfate. And I know sometimes that makes people really sick. I remember I didn't get sick. I got flushed, but that was about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I felt really warm. But after that, it was kind of like, you know, I was, I guess, in the operating room. And I don't remember them ever telling me what I had. And I don't know that they had even known that I hadn't known the sex of the baby. <laughs> so no, right. asking a nurse, I'm like, you know, they were like, oh, everything's great. Baby's good. You know, we're going to take baby to the to NICU. Your husband's going to go, you know, with, and I was like, okay, great. And then I went, can somebody tell me what I had? <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> and they're right. like, oh, oh, of course. And they kind of laughed. They said, oh, like, you know, I, uh, oh, you had a beautiful baby girl. And I was like, oh, great. And I got to see her very, very briefly in the, she wasn't in the isolate yet, but the transport. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. So I got to see her really, really shortly. But other than that, then they were going back to work on, you know, sewing me up and everything. And then I was put into recovery. So I didn't get to really have much contact with her in any way. And I know they also, I think there's a general procedural thing where women have had the mag sulfate, like they're not supposed to go into the NICUs. I don't recall exactly why that is now, but I remember being like, oh, like I just wanted to see her like after right, that. Right? right. And I, it was kind of like I begged and pleaded. And finally they were like, well, you can go for a few minutes. Like my husband wheeled me down there. Cause I was still at that point in mother baby unit and delivery unit. Sure. And so she was down in the NICU, which is on a different floor. So I did get to go see her for a short time. And then they ended up transferring. So I got discharged and they transferred her to the NICU and their NICU there was private rooms. So hmm. I basically camped out at the hospital for like the whole time she was there, which was 27 days. Hmm. We went through a lot of ups and downs in the NICU as most parents do with the, you know, something would kind of look off and then it would be resolved the next day. And sometimes you know, she had a number of transfusions that happened. Mm -hmm. I was present in the room for all of the rounds, which was, you know, really helpful. I think for me, they took time, the doctors and everybody who was involved in rounds as a collaborative team took the time to answer any questions, you know. That's um, amazing. Yeah. It's yeah, pretty rare to have private rooms also. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I know there's controversy out there, or I guess not controversy, more so like just the different perspectives of mm -hmm. what's beneficial and what's not to the neonate and to, okay. the, to the mother. <laughs> I really liked it because I felt like I was able to, I just like being in there all the time. And I mm -hmm. think when there's so much going on with all the machines, if you're putting yourself into a setting where it's a multi-bed unit. It makes it easier for the staff to be able to care for your child, but mm -hmm. it's not super conducive to kind of anything else. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's my personal view. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they had a name on the door and they had, you know, we could kind of uh, sort of like decorate the room a little bit. My other two kids made drawings for her that we put up and, you know, it was, yeah, it was really cute. And they had volunteers who make little hats mm -hmm. <laughs> that came around. And so they brought that and, you know, the entire experience, I think I felt, you know, very supported through all aspects of the communication that was happening. They had this particular hospital had someone on staff who was there just to be a resource for the families. Mm -hmm. So she would check in. And when the kids came to visit, which was not super often because 
they were at home and trying to keep to a regular schedule. But when they did come to see her, when they weren't in the room, she brought them puzzles. It was just really good. Everything was a really good experience. So I'm assuming then, just to backtrack a little bit, that after the C-section, then that your preeclampsia resolved or you were relatively okay? Yeah, Yeah, for the most part, you know, I did need to be put on blood pressure medication for a short term. So I was Mm -hmm. on that for about, oh, I would say probably two months postpartum. For some people, the, the effects of the blood pressure don't actually resolve all the way. So some people have to be on meds for a longer time period Mm -hmm. before it resolves. Some it doesn't resolve at all. And they just Mm -hmm. are you know, it, it depends on a lot of things. But yeah, for me, I was on Levetilol, I believe it was. So I was taking that while I was in the hospital okay. and then afterwards. So yeah. Okay. So then you were primarily staying in the NICU with your daughter and then things were okay for a little while. And then what yeah. happened? Yeah. Then, so one of the things, and this will come into play later. So I want to kind of give some focus too. So I was there all the time. I didn't want to leave because it was too far away in case something happened. And I was just in that mindset where you know, I would go down to the cafeteria. Yes, but I didn't want to leave the hospital. And after, you know, a couple weeks, it's probably been about three weeks. And, you know, my husband and my kids were back to normal schedule. Both our parents had spent a week with the kids taking care of them. It was very much like I hadn't been home and they were all kind of like, hey, you know, why don't you take a break? Even the nurses were like, why don't you go home, go visit, you know, see your family, see your husband, you know, see the kids. And I was like, I finally decided to do that. And when I went home, you know, I checked in every day and she was doing okay. You know, they would give me, the nurses would give me updates and I felt okay about that. And then I came back. So I went from a Friday to a Sunday, came back. And on that Tuesday following, she had developed a, well, actually, I guess before I get to that, I can backtrack it. I noticed that she had become lethargic. Preemies are small and mighty and very much, you know, very active, very feisty. I think they get the reputation for her. And so, you know, she was normally like that. And what they would say is, you know, she's really doing pretty well. She just has to eat and grow. My neonatologist had said, you know, she keeps going like this. We'll, we'll be able to talk about, you know, another two weeks, we'll be able to talk about transfer back to your hometown. Mm. And, you know, I know that anybody who is in the NICU is very cautious with the words they use and what they imply and what they say, because Mm -hmm. false hope is not, you know, something they really want to give to parents. So I knew that that meant she was doing well. You know, we watched her oxygen levels on the stats get, you know, they were reducing it because she was able to breathe, you know, relatively well on her own. So the amount of oxygen they had to provide to her was decreasing, which is good. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course you have the ups and downs. So sometimes they would have to make it higher, but she would recover. She was taking my breast milk. So it, it did have to be fed through a tube, but I had Mm -hmm. been pumping and we were storing milk. And so when she was able to have nutrients that weren't, you know, just from a solution, they would always give her my milk and she was taking it just fine. So that was a good sign, right? Everything kind of pointed to, well, Hey, you know, we're cautiously optimistic. Things are going well in the right direction. So that was part of what allowed me to kind of feel like it was okay to go home. Can I get a sense like throughout this period of time, what was your mental state? Like, how were you doing? You know, I feel like I was okay. It had kind of just become routine, right? Because I was there. So I would get up in the morning. I would sleep in the room for the most part. They had like a couch or whatever you want to call it that you could crash on. At the beginning, my husband would stay in one of the rooms that they made available to parents who asked for it as long as they could accommodate. So I was okay. I mean, I think I was confident in what I was seeing and I tried to just adjust to, well, you know, what should I do now? I was keeping in contact with family and friends who were inquiring. I was talking to her. I was interacting with her as much as I could and asking about kangaroo care. And so I was okay. It was somewhat stressful, but I didn't really see the mental health implications till later on. Mm-hmm. To be perfectly oh, okay. honest. All right. Okay. So uh, kind of back into the story. She started to not do well. She was lethargic she, and then I came back. Yeah. And I noticed that she was lethargic. So I said something to the doctor. I was like, Hey, like she doesn't seem to be as, you know, moving around as much today. And they're like, Oh yeah, you know, let's take a look. And then they found that she had an infection, which, you know, again, is not uncommon. 
you know, preemies get lots of different things that may or may not get resolved. But this one ended up being, it was a hospital acquired bacteria. And, you know, obviously we don't really know how she got it or where or why, but she started to become septic. So at that point, when I noticed the lethargy, it was because, you know, the stuff had started moving into her bloodstream. And Pseudomonas was the bacteria. It's really mm. aggressive. The yeah. doctors explained that they tried several different courses of antibiotics from you know broad spectrum to the heavy hitters, you know, anything that they could. I think at that point, she still had to have another transfusion or two for some reason. They were looking for perforations in her intestines because mm. they could see something, but they couldn't tell where it was. So even like the neonatal surgeon was, had looked at her x-rays and they were just like, you know, like they couldn't find the obvious where it was. And sometimes they're so tiny that you just, um, Would this be something that she was born with or was it the, a cause of the bacteria? No, she wasn't born with it. The infection was developed from bacteria that was introduced to her somewhere in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So we don't know. No, how. sorry, the perforations oh, sorry. that you were Oh, describing. the perforations. No, I don't think she was born with it because she wasn't showing that. before. I'm not exactly sure, you know, why, but yeah, at some point it seemed like the bacteria then had gotten into the bloodstream somehow. So the infection got worse. She was just really, really sick. And, you know, the way they explained it to me was that they, you know, kind of what they say is they tried everything, you know, they were going to look at if antibiotics were working, if transfusions were helping and they, they couldn't get control of the infection. Yeah. Because the particular one that she had is really, really aggressive. And so... um, Pseudomonas. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, and especially babies, you know, her size, that she was born at one pound, five ounces. Mm -hmm. So, you know, her weight kind of fluctuated a little bit based on how much she was able to take in as far as nutrition. And if they had to give her antibiotics, then they stopped the feedings and they just do the nutrient. So, yeah, it was not good. So they had kind of prepared us for the worst. And at that point, I would say is where everything changed. I, I tend to be a relatively optimistic person. So I think up until that point, you kind of go with the flow. You know, there's ups and downs. Mm-hmm. You know, I tried not to jump to conclusions. But once that was the case and they were really looking at, there was nothing else they could do, that really made the maternal guilt come in. Mm-hmm. I felt like I left her and this is why it happened. Mm-hmm. This is why she got sick because I left, you know, and of course that's right. not true. I always say that the heart is different from the head. You can yeah. know something in your head and it doesn't matter because you still feel responsible. So she was sick for three days and then she ended up passing away. You know, we did get to spend time with her. We did get to hold her. They took out all the tubes on the day Actually, my husband and I made the decision to take her off the supportive systems. So in that respect, I think it was helpful because we were able to, you know, bring everybody to the hospital. Mm -hmm. We had the godparents there. We had my parents and my husband's parents and our pastor came in and did a baptism. I'm not super spiritual, but we had interaction with her kind of as a family unit and prior to all of this happening. So it was helpful for her to be there. But yeah, we were able to do the things we needed to do to get a little bit of closure. And then my husband and I spent the last moments of her life with her and mm-hmm. with the nurse. And you know, of course, the doctor has to call the time of death. So they did have to do that eventually after they gave us some space with her. But yeah, it was really mm-hmm. difficult. Yeah, and- I'm so sorry. Oh, thank you. It's a lot to go through. I mean, this is, um, you're describing several months worth of, I mean, from your condition to the birth and to like the ups and downs in the NICU and then dealing with this and then, you know, after effects for a while, I'm sure um, that is quite a lot to deal with. And that's a lot. I mean, I appreciate you speaking to the maternal guilt part because as you were talking about it, I was thinking, gosh, there's so many moms who do take that on and fathers, families who take that on is when there's any kind of difficulty or loss is, well, what I should have done X, Y, or Z, or like looking through all of the moments where you feel like you could have or should have done something different to change the outcome. And 
It's, you know, part of this feeling so out of your control to be able to do stuff. It makes sense to look for those things, but man, is that a heavy burden? Yeah. I spent a lot of time, you know, I think I know a lot about grief and how it processes. I was a human development major. My life course kind of changed after that and I went into a different field, but you know, when I came back to this, it, it all makes sense, but it still doesn't make it feel any better. No, Um, right. Is your experience and kind of moving through the grief and all that you went through prompted you to start your work? Yes, because I had felt like, although we had support at the hospital, I didn't really feel like there was a lot of peer support out there for people who had gone through this, you Mm -hmm. know, through infant loss. And I think the only things I knew about were like support groups. And Mm -hmm. I really wasn't a support group kind of person. It was not going to bring me comfort. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, but what I did find is while I was in there, and especially right after she died, I got a Facebook message from an acquaintance, a mutual friend of someone who I worked with on the... I don't even know how to describe it. It wasn't a colleague who was there every day. It was like a regional manager for a Mm. hotel and Mm -hmm. they were following, you know, I was very open about everything that was going on Facebook because I felt like that was where a lot of people who knew us could kind of follow along because they weren't there locally. Mm -hmm. So this woman had emailed me and she said, I've been following your story. I'm a friend of so-and-so. I just wanted to let you know, I'm so sorry. Number one, I'm so sorry for your loss. Number two, I lost my daughter as well in December. And if you ever need to talk, I'm here. And, you know, we connected through there and that was my lifeline. Yeah. Um, I felt like nobody, my friends and family hadn't really experienced this at all. So it wasn't Mm -hmm. that they weren't being sympathetic. It just, they didn't understand. And I think a lot of others feel that way. Sure. And I'll add to that too. A lot of people don't know what to say and don't know what to do. And I think also tend to just stay back a little bit because it's awkward for them. Yeah. yeah. But it can feel really isolating, right? To like people just kind of like disappear or are not showing up for you in ways that you might need or had hoped. Right. Right. And I think I didn't even know what I needed at that point. It was very much like I was in such crisis mode that I kind of, like I said, she was my lifeline and I would call her and it felt really good to be able just to like, you don't have to explain the whole story. You don't have to explain how you're feeling. She Mm -hmm. just did. And that is what I felt was lacking Mm -hmm. for other people after I looked at everything. Cause you know, we don't want to talk about the sad things and the things that go wrong. But then once something like that happens, and I think we see this a lot in not only infant loss, but pregnancy loss in general, Mm -hmm. you know, people come out of the woodwork and say, Oh, I had this happen. I had this happen, but not until it's brought up. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I worked my way through the grief by using her as just my, like, I needed her to stand. And it was more so like just, we would talk and I would, Mm -hmm. sometimes I would just cry on the phone to her. And I didn't need, I think another thing that's important is people, when you want to help someone who's going through this, our tendency as a society and what we've been taught is to try to fix it for them. Mm -hmm, Right. And it's really uncomfortable, but accepting the fact that you can't fix this and not trying to, Mm-hmm. You know, it is the hardest thing I think for people to do because they want to do something. Uh, but sure. They, really... they feel helpless and, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. exactly. So, wow. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. 
Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So, join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts, starting in January. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it. Yeah, so through the organization that you've founded, the Tangerine Owl Project, this was kind of inspired through your it was. experience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it was. Yeah, people ask me where I got the name from, and I'm like, oh, well, you know, I relate it back to my daughter, Delilah. I said she was, you know, in a couple of different ways, right? So the tangerine is because she was not a pale pink kind of girl. She was coming to the world and it was with a bang and you know all the stuff that we had to go through and she didn't do anything small. So I couldn't relate that to that pale pink. And I went, oh, mm-hmm. I got to find something. And I wanted to, when she was first in the hospital, we didn't have anything. We were only halfway through the pregnancy. We didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't ready and prepared didn't have much for her and I wanted to get her something. So as I was sitting there in the NICU, I was like, Oh, you know, I can get her a blanket. I can get her the silky thing. Cause both my other kids really liked them. And it's, if you've ever you know seen or heard the silkies, the security blankets, they've got mm-hmm. one side that's super soft and one mm-hmm. side that's like a satiny. Mm-hmm. And so I custom made, I mean, I didn't make it myself, but I ordered one that was custom for her. And so I picked that tangerine color because it was very vibrant and pretty and then the owls were on the other side. And I was like, oh, it reminded me of her because when they're so small like that, that one pound, five ounces, their mm-hmm. eyes. And if you've ever seen mm-hmm. preemies, like their eyes are just so big in relation mm-hmm. to the rest of their bodies. So I also attribute the wide-eyed owl in terms of, of knowledge and teaching, right? So owls mm-hmm. are thought to be as wise and it stood out to me as something that it doesn't make sense. When you say the Tangerine Owl Project, it doesn't speak to anything that we do. However, it has deep meaning for myself and, you know, the attribution to my daughter. So right. yeah, that was well, that's beautiful. I mean, you're connected. This is your organization and you're connected yep. to it in a really exactly. powerful way. Yep. <laughs> that's outstanding. And really, it sounds like, you know, from the bio and stuff that you're doing, you're really in this world and kind of helping other families in a meaningful, tangible way. I am. Yeah. I feel, you know, when I started the project, it was to be able to offer one-on-one peer support, Mm -hmm. you know, simply be that mom who listens and can sit with them in the dark and, you know, either figuratively or literally Mm -hmm. (laughs) depending on the case. And I really have, I think from the feedback I've gotten from the mothers I've worked with, it's so comforting to them to have someone who knows because mm-hmm. they don't have to tell their story 50 times and they don't right. have to, right. you know, like I said, you kind of just get it. So that was what I aimed to provide. It has, you know, as far as what I want to do with the project, it has grown where I want to go with it has grown exponentially. I've learned a ton about the world of maternal mental health and I thought I had dealt really well. I started the project a year after my daughter's death and I did it on her birthday because I knew it was going to be a hard day. So I was like, oh, let's make something positive, right? I couldn't stand the thought of her existence just kind of being done, Mm -hmm. I guess. Absolutely, Um, right. Yeah. So it's like, all right, you know, talk about meaning making. And I started this organization and I thought, all right, you know, I'm coping with this really well. Like I got, you know, we moved and I'd gone back to, you know, caring for our children and you go through the initial grief period and you kind of wall off everybody and you just do the bare minimum, make sure they're clothed and fed and Mm -hmm. and have a house, but not much more emotionally speaking. So that took a little while to get through, but I had felt like I was doing really, really well. And I was like, look, I started this project and it was cathartic for me. You know, definitely not altruistic, (laughs) but then I found you know, a couple of years later, I actually, and this is where the mental health aspect gets in. A couple of years later, I, I was at another job and 
I started having a lot of anxiety and depression, panic attacks, and I didn't know where they were coming from because Mm -hmm. it wasn't anything that was a logical connector to what I was doing in my work life versus, you know, it wasn't happening when I was doing things for Tangerine Owl. I was working a regular full-time job and, you know, um, in the hotel industry and it started to really build up. It caused me a lot of mental health issues and I just couldn't understand where it was coming from. And so I went to a therapist and I had to get on you know, medication, antidepressants, and I got some anti-anxiety meds. It's surprising because my therapist had said, you know, do you think this is related to your daughter? And I was like, well, no, like I'm doing fine with that. I don't, you know, it doesn't cause me trauma to think about her. And I was open with everybody. I shared her story a lot. I did, you know, the stuff with the project. We always talked to our kids about her. So when they would be upset, you know, we made sure to instill that, I think, so that people are allowed to talk about their feelings. And Mm -hmm. it floored me because I couldn't understand why this stuff was coming out so much later. I mean, this is four years after the fact. We had done a memorial for her. We had, you know, everything that you kind of think helped to give comfort and to give closure to the traumatic experience that you have. I felt like I had done that. So Mm -hmm. it was like, why, you know, I went to therapy when we were in our previous hometown. And then I also went to therapy once we moved. So it was, I was, you were doing all of the things that you could possibly do to, right. (laughs) Exactly. So I was like, why, why, you know, and it wasn't like I put it away. Right. I I didn't Mm -hmm. stop dealing Mm -hmm. with it. It doesn't seem like I did. So yeah, when all this stuff started happening, I was like, it really was shocking. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's true for some people. There can be delayed responses or delayed onset of feelings and symptoms, but I'm glad you're speaking to it because it just, I mean, your whole experience, I'm sure that the listeners can identify with parts or all of what you're describing. And I think the more, you know, that you've given quite a few details about your experience, which helps other people to be able to identify too, not unsimilar to what you did with the Tangerine Project is really, you know, reaching out to people and give, holding space. Yeah. And I appreciate you doing that with your story and your experience. And it sounds like you, I mean, obviously you went through so much and then to several years later have to be dealing with, oh my gosh, here are all of these feelings. And yeah. <laughs> that's a lot. It's a lot to handle, but you yeah. know, normalizing it for other people like you're doing by, by sharing with us is so important. Yes. I, like I hear so often from people, oh, like, it feels like it's just me or what's wrong with me. I'm sure nobody else has ever had this feeling or felt it in this way. And yep. Yep. I mean, basically my sense is that if you have a feeling, somebody else has had somebody it too. Has it. Yeah. Um, and that's what I tell people. I'm like, you know, I said, don't, when I talk to people who are working with me and any front, it's like, if you've, yeah, if you've done it, if you feel it, I get it. And so if you want to call and yell at me, even though it's not like, that's fine. If you want to call and cry, mm-hmm. if you want to talk to me and, it's anything that you have, I've probably felt it. And if I haven't, I know women who have. So it's, right. yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's vital to explore that. And I think the more and more that I learn, you know, again, a really big advocate now for maternal mental health, the more that I've learned about yeah. the processes that happen for women after loss and then in general, mm-hmm. just you know, talking through, through pregnancy and prenatal and postnatal care, just everything that I've learned cements the fact that we aren't doing enough for our mothers and we're not, you know, Mm -hmm. it's all about the baby. It's not about the moms. And yeah, so that's kind of what I, you know, normalizing all of that stuff from, Mm -hmm. I didn't ever suffer from postpartum depression or anxiety stuff prenatally or postnatally really. Like when you look at that cutoff, like anytime within the year after I didn't have those things. So, but I certainly did get all these things following the loss. So Mm -hmm. I can relate to the women who are going through that. Yeah. It's great. I mean, for you to share that, thank you. Because right, so many people are confused by when they have feelings that don't come up when those windows are supposedly closed or when it feels like they should have felt it at some other point. It can can feel confusing, but really it can come. It comes when it comes. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, I thank you so much for sharing your story and your experience and the work that you're doing now. I know you're involved in quite a few organizations, both nationally and in your community, and it's so needed and so necessary. And thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. I appreciate the chance to actually share again and to let women know that it's okay to find somebody who will listen. And sometimes that's not your close supportive people because they just don't know how to handle it. Mm. But, you know, anybody who can help mend that for you or with you, I guess, walk the road with you is going to be a benefit. So hold on to those people tight and seek them out and you'll let them help you. you take away because you can't do it on your own. Even though we're very strong women, all of us are really strong. I think it takes at least one other person, if not a community to really I look at you have all the support in the world and you still end up with issues like me, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I never felt like I wasn't supported and I, it still hit me. So that's an important thing to remember. Thank you so much, Stacey. Great. Thank you. Take care. Thank you again, Stacey, for sharing your experience with us. And for those of you who did identify with parts of her story or parts that were difficult for you to hear, just take a little extra care of yourself today as it can be difficult sometimes to hear other people's experiences if they're close to yours. If you'd like to get in touch with Stacy or learn more about the work that she's doing, go to tangerineowl.org and connect with her on Facebook at Tangerine Owl Project. As usual, please do connect with us. Subscribe, download our episodes so you don't miss any, and connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. If you'd like to dig a little deeper and have some conversations with us, find us at the Mom and Mind Connection Facebook group. Until next time. By joining us today, you are part of the growing community of people who are aware and concerned for mothers and families during this beautiful and sometimes very difficult time of life. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, help is available. You can feel better. Please look for resources for help at momandmind.com. Together, we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Thank you for listening and being a part of the Mom and Mind community. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.